welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. This week, I am talking to our friends Mike and Martin from My Concern, which is a company that provides the safeguarding software to schools. We wanted to talk a bit about what has been going on with safeguarding during the partial school closures, whether safeguarding instances and concerns are increasing, what kind of issues designating safeguarding leads are going to be dealing with when they come back to school, and generally hearing from the conversations and work that they've been doing supporting designating safeguarding leads during this period. I hope you find it a really useful episode. Before we begin, just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around issues. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Mike Glanville, Director of Safeguarding Services, and Martin Baker, CEO at My Concern. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Caroline. Hi. Mike and uh, Martin joined us um, earlier in the year on uh, Key Voices, and you might remember that they both had previous careers as as senior police officers. And we're going to talk a little bit about about safeguarding trends and and what's been happening over this um, period of of lockdown and lots of children not being in schools, won't say school closures. So um, I'm really interested to know, how did the switch to remote learning and that kind of partial school closure affect safeguarding, in your opinion? I I think it had a a huge impact, I think, on on schools and and particularly the role of the safeguarding lead or the the safeguarding person in Wales. Um, But yeah, no, it's had a huge impact, I think, Caroline. Um, and initially, uh, that the focus was very much on <clears throat> how do we manage um, vulnerable children. Um, so, as you know, you know, vulnerable children um, were one of those groups uh, that um, would be attending school and have been attending school throughout that period. But we do know uh, quite a number of vulnerable children, in fact, um, for whatever reason, were not actually attending school. Um, you know, whether that's because parents were keeping their children at home um, or, uh, or because uh, for whatever reason uh, they weren't able to make it into school, um, transport issues and, and that kind of stuff. So, so I think that was a real challenge, you know, how, how to manage then those vulnerable children when you don't necessarily have uh, regular contact uh, with them. So we were getting lots of reports from safeguarding leads saying this is really tricky, you know, because a you know, we, uh, we're finding it quite difficult uh, to monitor those children. We're finding it quite difficult actually to assess risk uh, around those children when we're not having uh, regular contact uh, with them. Uh, and then, you know, working with the other agencies as well, uh, given that they've clearly got a responsibility towards those vulnerable children. Um, that was also, I think, a major challenge. So I think to begin with, um, there were lots of issues about what's the best way to manage vulnerability, you know, how do we best manage risk assessment, and how do we best uh, manage working with other agencies. So I think the initial the world's changed at midnight almost, didn't it? You know that when lockdown was announced and those moves were made. Um, everything changed in a sense, um, and there was no blueprint for how we were going to manage, uh, how DSLs were going to manage in that new context. Um, so one of the things that we immediately recognised that actually one of the things that we could help was to enable DSLs to communicate and at the very least share their problems, but hopefully also share some solutions. Um, so um, Mike uh, and our safeguarding advisory panel have, for the past four months now, uh, been running what were weekly and now fortnightly COVID-19 support sessions for safeguarding leads. Uh, And we've seen over 2,000 delegates come through those sessions now, um, which has been extraordinary because the level of 
uh, both concern, um, confusion, um, and challenge that all of those safeguarding leads have experienced, but also their resilience and their commitment to solve those problems on, on behalf of has been truly astonishing. And the way that they've been willing to share their experiences, to talk about how they have approached a particular problem and then tried to solve it, has helped so many other people. And it's just been wonderful to see, because in a physical sense, if you try to get 2,000 safeguarding leads to talk to each other um, on a regular basis, it would be just impossible, you know, because they would all think they would have to go to a place and have a meeting. The fact that we've been able to do this online has actually created a whole new uh, community safeguarding leads really, who are able to both share not only problems, but share solutions. And that's been a real, uh, you know, major step forward in, in many ways for safeguarding. Yeah, and I think it's a phenomenon that we've we've noticed with you know different types of school leaders that we've been we've been talking to on the podcast. That real speed and urgency and sense that everybody is 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 trying to cope with something that is new and changing. There aren't a bunch of people who are just sitting there with the answers, and you haven't got time to wait for, and you also aren't phys physically able to to get together. Um, but you know, let's all just jump on a on a call and 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 see see what see what can happen, and and you know, responding to that need and and connecting those people is a really vital um, way of of getting support to those those children. And in terms of you know your your platform and and, and people reporting concerns about children, what what sort of happened to the the levels of activity during this period? surprisingly high levels of usage. Uh, uh, what's been fascinating in a sense is to see the demand on the system, but also the necessity for the system, because you can't go to a filing cabinet or a piece of paper. Um, email is incredibly clunky. How do you share things securely? How do you encourage people to report things? Uh, in a way that's quick, easy, straightforward, that can be actioned, you can share the information with another agency. In a sense, the technology is coming to its own uh, because you can't manage remote safeguarding using four ring binders and filing cabinets. It's, it's an almost an impossibility. Uh, and of course, what it's also enabled has been a line of communication to families that sometimes have been hard to reach um, because schools, instead of being seen as an arm of authority, which some of the other agencies sometimes are, are actually seen as people not only supporting the pupil, but supporting the family. So we've heard marvellous stories of actually food parcels being delivered uh, by schools to families families coming and collecting food parcels from collection points, and then relationships building between pupils and parents that have, uh, and the school that have been really fractured and difficult to, uh, to maintain. You know, the, the parents that unfortunately won't attend a parents' evening, that won't respond to a letter home, that don't engage with some of the activity that between the school and home, because of the situation that's been created and the response of schools, the amazing response of schools, to put welfare as the number one priority and let's then do teaching and learning when we know people are, are well and safe. That's actually changed quite dramatically in some cases the relationship between the school and the family. But you really hope they can build on going forwards because then the school can better support and better help that child to learn and achieve going forward. So there have been some remarkable, almost heroic stories uh, of how uh, schools have been innovating, safeguarding leads, have got teams together, they've got together maybe with a, a local church group um, to deliver food parcels, to, to get medication for families, 
to do all sorts of different things, as well as providing teaching and learning resources, providing, you know, loaning a laptop to a family. Um, you know, some of the issues that have come out about you know, some families quite clearly um, will not have access to unlimited data, will not have access to the number of devices they need because of the number of children in the household. It could be at different stages of education. But all of those things, as well as supporting teaching and learning, have actually strengthened that bond between the family and the school that ultimately makes those children safer uh, because they are more supportive and there's greater visibility. I mean, you know, some of the listeners may have read about this awful case um, in Staffordshire recently where a 14-year-old girl was actively, it would appear, actively concealed from the services by the family during this period uh, and suffered some dreadful harm uh, as a consequence. When you've got a school that is willing to go that extra mile to visit, to have contact and to maintain that visibility so you can be sure that that child is safe, that has been an incredibly positive thing uh, that's come out of all the efforts that have been made by Safeguard and Leeds. So there has been a, a, a real real uh, heroic effort. There's no other way of describing it. Uh, and of course, you know, the safeguarding leads me to be in a position to spot those safeguarding trends. And the trends are, <clears throat> they are different. Um, and, you know, one of the things we've heard is in terms of them being able to monitor uh, vulnerability, um, they're using the system or have been using the system to track, you know, every contact uh, with those children. Um, whether that contacts by the DSL or by a member of staff or whether it's information provided them to, to them by a third party, like another agency. So having all of that information in the system uh, and then available to demonstrate, you know, how they've been able to, to manage that vulnerability and protect those children during a very, very challenging period has been crit critical to them. Um, so we do think it's made a difference. And, I mean, in terms of your question, which is around the levels of activity, like Martin said, we've not really seen any real significant drop-off in the terms of the use of the system. Um, we, we anticipated that, um, yeah. but uh, we've, we've not really seen that at all. No, that's, that's interesting. And, and as you say, there's been such a broadening of the, the school's remit, you know, as so often those schools are the first kind of port of, call for for those those children uh, to start to, to unpick where there, there might be other concerns and actually a real a real freeing up when you know these these issues around access to food um, have have been you know such an emergency you know mm. action has been needed um, to, to be taken very quickly and you know families opening up to say you know this is what I this is what I need um, and, and as you say with the devices and other things um, just having this this I guess this kind of COVID moment and COVID lens um, to, to, to understand more what what those what those children need what those families need and and, and going kind of be above and beyond as you say so many many schools have been have been doing that um, and would you say that 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 the the, the the concerns are around um often things re related to i guess economic hardship or you know relationships in families what what kind of emerging trends have you been noticing over this period about what people are reporting on um, well i mean what dsl talked to us quite often about <clears throat> is the kind of mental health issues that are emerging um, you know, throughout, the, throughout the crisis. So and I think that's one of the big concerns about the return in September <clears throat> is you know, managing the consequences um, of COVID you know, and the fact that a lot of vulnerable children have been finding this really challenging. Um, so I think there's definitely been a, a concern about mental health. Um, so it's one of the issues. Um, it's definitely, I think, raised concerns about uh, poverty um, and the challenge that that can bring for a lot of families. Um, and there's definitely a difference between, you know, families in terms of, you know, um, having access 
to devices, take, to technology. Being able to access online lessons for some has been quite uh, a straightforward uh, process, and some others have been really difficult. So I think there's, you know, that's been interesting. And I think the other, the other one is domestic violence as well. Um, so whilst we've not yet seen a significant increase in the, the actual numbers, um, we are hearing that there has been an increase in the number of incidents, which is obviously a little bit different. So I think what schools are finding it difficult to do is to, is to spot the symptoms or spot the problem. Um, it can be a really difficult thing to identify. Um, but what we're hearing is that domestic violence, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, Caroline, domestic violence behind the scenes has been a big issue for a lot of families. And I, and I guess it must be, you know, the, the, the best attempts at schools to, to make those regular contacts, it's never mm. going to be as regular as a child attending school for a full day in terms of, exactly. of access to looking at that child and tr trying to understand what might be happening there. Um, so I can appreciate that, that that must be really challenging for people on the ground doing doing the job. Um, and uh, it, it, thinking about this, um, you know, we are going to be seeing the 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 effect the economic effects of of recession, and you know the the, the impact of, of of people not being able to go about their business as freely as as they had they had been for a long time, and we will potentially go back to lockdowns in in various areas. So thinking about that sort of September return, and you know some some families potentially tipping into vulnerability that hadn't possibly been there before what what do you think would be kind of top of a, a dsl's kind of worry list i mean i think going back in september they'll be very worried about i just say as i say the consequences of of covid 19 on some families and there may be some pent up so to put it that way safeguarding issues that are going to crop up in september so i think you know being in a position um to spot those um uh, is going to be really important so I think they'll be, I think, quite, you know, concerned about that and what uh, what that might lead to. Um, so I think again, the you know, it's it's very difficult at the moment. I think to get any kind of assessment on the the kind of mental health problems or the mental health issues that may emerge as a result of what we've been through. Um, so I think that's one of the one of the issues. I think they'll be kind of very sensitive to when children do come back in September, and I think they'll be that staff are taking the time to have those conversations with, with children uh, to identify any you know um, difficult um, issues difficult safeguarding or difficult safeguarding concerns and we, we may see an uplift in the number of safeguarding concerns that are being reported or disclosed once children do get back and they're with you know a professional adult uh, you know back in back in the setting back on site and feel that they are in a position to to disclose information um, to staff. So I think that that could be um, a, an issue as well to think about. Um, and, and you're right, I think the other thing that they'll be concerned about are subsequent lockdowns <laughs> is, the, is the other issue that I think all of us are concerned about and the impact that's gonna have, um, not just in terms of how, uh, how it might affect families, but also how it might affect staff and, um, and how they manage safeguarding uh, from here on in. I think that's a really important point, Mike. I think it's a really important point, Mike, about uh, actually uh, the unpredictability of the situation. You could actually find a, a situation where the child comes back to school, the staff then are managing safeguarding issues with that child, and then there's a lockdown in that area. And for some reason, that child is then no longer mm -hmm. coming to school period of time for whatever reason but the management of that safeguarding concern can't stop so actually how that's managed you know i think is a, one of the real practical problems and i think one of the things that you know the preparation time now almost for september i think there's a couple of things that that it's worth schools thinking about one is around capacity do they have sufficient safeguarding capacity in the school or do they actually need to increase uh, the level of resource available to deal with potential safeguarding when they come back whether that's uh, you know 
uh, adding another deputy DSL for a period of time or, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but also reminding staff about the signs and symptoms that they might encounter when children return to school so that they're more alert perhaps even than usual uh, because they could easily uh, be seeing things uh, and they really need to, to know that they should be alert to those things and record those things uh, because as Mike said there could have been stuff going on in the home that was completely unseen uh, during lockdown that starts to manifest itself in some way shape or form when those children come back to school so it's a, a timely uh, moment to remind staff of signs and symptoms and what they should be watching out for as well and encourage them to report those things because it's always those little things added together that actually give you the big picture. Um, uh, it's not only recording a serious thing, but actually it's, you know, that's why my concern is called my concern. It's the kind of stuff that sets the hairs on the back of your neck and you kind of go, hmm, that's not quite right. And I need to just note it because it could form part of a bigger picture and be part of something uh, that I'm not aware of that's going on with other people in the school and and um you know i think it's it, it will be very strange in september particularly in a primary setting where you know staff and pupils will be working together perhaps in new new configurations and there won't be that familiarity you won't necessarily know how that child behaves or pre presents and have that frame of reference to kind of know whether or not this is this is out of character behavior so as you say really worth being being on your guard and 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 picking up as as much as you can of 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 those those little those little things and 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 as you mentioned you know that 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 safeguarding capacity and and resource in a school it might well be worth thinking about how you how you prepare there and and you say take an issue like mental health um, you know that that that's really something that that needs to be a whole school priority. I would have thought, um, and also thinking about the um, the safeguarding team themselves and 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 staff team. Um, how would you suggest that those involved in in safeguarding kind of look after their own well being in amongst all of the um, uh, the the work and activity that will be going on in September? Yeah, I mean, that, that's such an important issue, I think, <clears throat> Caroline. And, and as Martin said, throughout, throughout the sessions that we ran, um, you know, the COVID-19 support sessions, um, that frequently uh, cropped up as an issue for staff, you know, is, is their own um, well-being uh, and their own mental health. And um, <clears throat> I think, you know, it's been, this has been a really, really challenging time uh, for schools, but particularly, I think, for anybody that's involved in safeguarding. Um, so I think, you know, managing that going forward is really, really important. And uh, one of one of the things I think to think about is how do you uh, provide some form of formal supervision, you know, or safeguarding leads? Um, we, we, we think that's probably quite a big gap at the moment. There are some schools that do this really well. Uh, but they have kind of formal sessions with their safeguarding leads um, and they bring people in that are able to provide that kind of space um, so that safeguarding leads are in a position to be able to debrief, they're in a position to be able to talk through um, not necessarily the detail of specific cases but to talk about how they feel uh, about their role and about how they feel about how um, they're managing some of these you know, challenges. Um, but it's a very kind of specialist role, but a really critical role. And I think a lot of schools find it quite difficult to, to kind of fill that very necessary gap. Um, so I think that's one thing that schools, you know, and local authorities and multi-academy trusts need to be thinking about is how do we cater to safeguarding leads in that respect? So we're providing them with the right kind of professional support that they need moving forward because I think it's you know very very necessary indeed and I think the other thing is just thinking about you know staff more broadly when staff are working remotely especially 
uh, and when they are having to say, manage disclosures or deal with difficult safeguarding issues, you know, um, are there things that the school can be doing or the safeguarding league can be doing to support them in terms of their own, you know, well-being? Um, and whether or not you need somebody in a position to be able to kind of coordinate the kind of well-being of staff in the school from that perspective, you know, from the safeguarding perspective, I think is also something worth worth thinking about. We've, we've, we've heard one or two really good examples of schools doing that, putting, putting in place well-being teams to manage, you know, their own mental health and their own challenges uh, moving forward, which has been particularly uh, successful. So, so it's, 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 a, it's definitely a big one. And I think that's where things like peer, you know, if you're in small schools, peer to support can be a really useful way of doing that. You may not have the resources to create a team or, or whatever in your own uh, school, but what you might have the ability to do is to collaborate with other schools and to provide peer to peer, -to -peer support for each other, to share ideas, to share issues, um, so that you do actually get uh, the opportunity be able to discuss out of your line management uh, uh, reporting system, be able to talk to, frankly talk to somebody about how you're feeling and how safeguarding is actually affecting you personally uh, and your team. Uh, you know, supervision in the sense that Mike was mentioning it, this is about, in a sense, what we would call clinical supervision. Uh, it's well known in many professions, such as nursing and in, um, medical, uh, the medical profession and in social care, far less so in education when it comes to safeguarding leave. But actually, there is a real need for that level of almost clinical supervision so they can actually look after their own welfare, uh, but make sure as well that they are uh, grounding themselves and getting good advice that isn't driven by a line management uh, relationship is actually being driven by their own particular needs. Yeah, and, I, and I, I can only imagine that during this kind of remote working period, particularly uh, staff who are undertaking home visits and this kind of thing, it, it must play on the mind a lot, thinking, you know, is that child all right? You know, should I be, you know, raising more of a flag at this point? When might I see them? You know, this this kind of thing. I can imagine that that is much, you know, it takes up much more brain space in that remote working environment mm -hmm. rather than having that daily rhythm of contact with them within a busy school yeah. setting. I, I would say there's a big, you know, real raised levels of anxiety for, for that specific reason. <clears throat> you know, where safeguarding leads even going out doing their own home visits, you know, they're so concerned about, you know, some of these, these vulnerable children, they're actually going out doing their own home visit, which I wouldn't necessarily advise, you know, given some of the potential risks you could be coming up against by going to somebody's home and checking on a child. But that's how passionate and committed they were to, to protecting these children. Um, and not being able to do that or not being in a position to do that on a regular basis or, you know, like you say, not having that contact, then does really does have an impact on their own kind of, you know, perception of that risk and, and their own anxiety uh, about that situation. So, yeah, definitely. Well, we have tried to pull together a lot of the lessons <clears throat> safeguarding leads. Um, so, we... Uh, asked Professor Jonathan Crego from the Hydra Foundation to run a, an event where we had 250 safeguarding leads online for a structured debriefing. And now Mike and I, as you mentioned, have a policing background and we are used to debriefing uh, after incidents and events and investigations and so forth. And we've worked with Jonathan in the past um, operationally uh, in policing and we asked him if he would look uh, are doing this for safeguarding it's kind of almost contracultural. It's not something that we tend to do. Schools are busy, we're on to the next thing, and reflection, there isn't always time and space for it, but it would actually be really important to pull some lessons out. And, uh, and Jonathan has this process called 10,000 volts. Um, uh, uh, and the, the whole point of that is it's a right, quick, hard, fast, let's 
get debriefed on this. It's not something that's going to take months to do. Let's get the lessons out because we need to learn them now. Um, so he ran a, an online debriefing course, doing safeguarding uh, And the feedback, both because they had the opportunity to do it, apart from anything else, which they thought was tremendous. But actually, really importantly, the things they were able to share, because in the structure debriefing, you can raise your own topic, but also comment on comments made by other people and support or give an alternative view. So the amount of learning came from that, and we've produced a report from that event uh, to help safeguarding leads and to draw out some of these issues. And we're sharing that report quite widely now with policymakers and opinion formers to try to kind of make people aware, certainly those people responsible for policy and resourcing, that actually, you know, we call it the loneliness of a long-distance safeguard. You know, it can be a very lonely job. It's an incredibly responsible job. One of the ways that you can at least share some of that burden is both by having deputy DSLs, but actually making care of your communities, a team effort. Because actually, if you take everything on yourself, and everything is your personal responsibility for every single child, you are putting enormous pressure on yourself. You are not supervised, and you can't do everything yourself. And actually, just by sharing information sometimes with your colleagues and getting alternative views and sharing the load can really, really help. Uh, so learning the lessons from uh, people's experience of safeguarding COVID-19 has been a very, really powerful material. And um, we will share a link to that report in the notes uh, from this podcast. And and as, you, and as you say, it's so fundamental and you can you know, engage in a lot of conversation about remote learning and whether or not that is taking place and, you know, access to devices, etc. But if those children are not safe, fundamentally, the rest of it, you know, doesn't come into play. So uh, it's great that you've got that, um, uh, as you say, sharing it widely with policymakers and others to, to help people understand uh, the learnings and, and what what needs to change for subsequent lockdowns or, or unusual uh, periods like the one we have just had. But and there's, and there's a, so many that on the fact that, you know, the average person in the street wouldn't even think about. But, for example, children, you know, with particular special needs, when you're asking a parent to cope full-time in the home without support for those children, and then those children perhaps exhibit behaviour, but the parents just don't know how to cope with it. So the school are then helping. We had safeguarding leads coming onto the debriefing sessions, and, and we were very, very fortunate that two of our, our safeguarding panel members are head teachers of special schools and very experienced practitioners, um, both uh, with physical uh, and mental disability. And their ability to say, you know what, if that child wants to stay in their pajamas all day, actually now might not be the time to challenge that behaviour. We can re-establish a new normal when we're back in school. But for their well-being, for their safety, for their mental well-being, actually that might be the right thing to do. So don't beat yourself up about the fact that things have changed and you are not this picture of perfection that's doing eight hours homeschooling a day, um, uh, uh, you know, that, that some people might see as, uh, you know, some vision of what they ought to be doing. It, actually, life is at a far more fundamental and practical level. It's important just to get each day, like every footstep in front of you, on a journey. And actually, then let's address the issue when it's the right time to address it. Uh, because for some of those children, you need to create an enormous amount of stress for them and for the rest of the family by trying to force an issue. Actually, you don't need to force and just be confident uh, in, in, in not doing some things as well as doing some things uh, it is really important. So the experience of people like um, Lisa Atak and Jackie Shanks uh, have just been enormously helpful, I think, in reassuring safeguarding leads that they are not expected to be superhuman or perfect, 
and that sometimes it's okay not I, I think it's a really good point, Martin, and I think one of the one of the issues as well is about making sure that you're addressing individual needs as far as possible, not just coming up with a, a blanket policy or a strategy. Um, I mean, we had some interesting comments on a debrief about some schools that decided they're right. We're going to do we're going to do checks, monitoring checks every day, and then of course what you get is you get this kind of then families reacting to that, you know, uh, and actually not very happy about having to be checked upon or checked on every day and staff actually feeling uncomfortable and actually there's not necessarily a need either you know so it is actually trying to work out what what's the, the what's our assessment here of this individual and, and the family and what's actually required for them you know what's actually going to work for them and work for the school and i think that's that's also really important rather than rather than trying to put, put lots of rules in place about how you're going to manage this manage risk and manage um you know the kind of contact with families uh, and then making it really really difficult to achieve and actually um you know getting in a situation where you're simply annoying people um so that that was one of the bits of feedback that actually came back you know from that session yeah i think that sort of recalibrating a sense of you know what what is normal or mm. you know or, and, and and sort of picking those areas that are actually going to make the the biggest difference and people will will work with you on as you say yeah. rather than sort of picking the wrong issues to go at and then people yeah. not engaging in the process as a result really yeah. um yeah looking forward to having a read of that report and as i say we'll we'll we'll, we'll pop it on the the notes here i'm sure people will find it really useful and mm. thinking thinking about the the future obviously a, a big change is introduction of a lot more ed tech in, into how schools are are working you know remotely with their their students are there, what, what are the sort of safeguarding implications and, and and issues there do you think i think that's really interesting because um i think we've seen all ends of the spectrum in terms of tech is the only way to go uh, and, and log on and, and you know to your heart's content to the complete opposite of oh you mustn't go online for safeguarding reasons and then you actually try and unpick what that actually means so what do you mean safeguarding reasons there and then you almost get into kind of flights of fancy almost about oh this could possibly and that could possibly uh, and I love listening to uh, Luke Ramsden who is uh, Deputy Head at St Benedict's in Ealing, who, who is on our safeguarding advisory panel. Uh, I love listening to his voice because he's incredibly calm, incredibly rational, incredibly intelligent, um, as you'd expect, uh, but he absolutely brings you right back down to, well, let's just think of this for a minute. You know, there are things that we can do to make it safe for students and teachers to be able to talk to each other online uh, and we can ensure that parents are involved in some way in the conversation and setting that up uh, that if we feel that it would be inappropriate in a given circumstance we might have team members and staff involved whatever do you know what i mean Dan? let's with all this plethora of, of stuff going on there's a real need for a really rational straightforward sensible approach to making sure that we get the very best out of the opportunities that EdTech provides uh, and online learning provides and we don't uh, allow ourselves to be distracted sometimes by some of the oh gosh what if that happened because you can take some pretty simple steps to make sure that those things won't happen um, and it really does require uh, a level of rationality and that's when in a very high powered situation uh, you know as we've had you know lots of anxiety a lot of pressure uh, lots of oh we must do this we must get this done deadlines and you know when government is coming on the tv on a daily basis announcing death figures and it feels incredibly tense and incredibly high powered which of course you know in one sense it is but actually, in terms of establishing a routine for young people, 
and for families that's rational, reasonable, achievable, uh, you really have got to take some calm decisions, if I could put it that way, and actually make sure that you're thinking things through carefully uh, and you're making the right decisions uh, rather than making what can sometimes be an emotional decision about the best way forward. And sometimes people sort of throw in, because of safeguarding, as a reason for... You know, over the years, the number of times that people have told us, you can't share information, your head's going to fall off if you do that, it's going to be awful. Because they don't understand the legislation, they don't understand the guidance, they don't understand what they ought to be doing. Um, we ran a session uh, about six months ago with a large group of safeguarding leads, and Mike said, so who uh, knows anything about special category data? And there was one tentative hand starting to creep up in the room. And you think, well, this is a group of experienced safeguarding leads. If they don't know what special category they are, and what they're allowed to share, what they're not allowed to share, and what circumstances they're allowed to tell parents or not tell parents, um, then we've got a job on our hands in terms of education. Uh, because these are fundamental issues. Uh, and so, it leads to, if there is misunderstanding or an absence of knowledge, this perception, you mustn't share it, you mustn't do this for safeguarding reasons. In fact, the reverse is quite often the case. You should be sharing that information for safeguarding reasons, and you should be doing it for a positive purpose, to protect the child and to make somebody safer. Um, so you're, I think you're absolutely right, Caroline. You know, there is this kind of, it's almost throwing sand in the air and it gets in your eyes and you can't see clearly what the issue is. Um, okay. to, the, you know, data protection is so often being used as an excuse for yeah. inaction as opposed to taking action. I, I think part of that is because sometimes people are looking to remove all risk <laughs> for members of staff. <clears throat> and, and that's just not possible. It's, it's about how you're managing risk and mitigating uh, potential risk. So yes, there's always going to be a risk if you're having contact with children online um, for fairly obvious reasons, I think. But as long as you're putting in, you know, you're putting in place uh, plans around that and you're thinking about what you can do to mitigate those things, then clearly the, the safeguarding element of that from a school's perspective in terms of protecting the child certainly outweighs any potential concerns you might have about suddenly a teacher being compromised mm -hmm. in some sort of situation. I think. I mean, that's what really puzzles me is that, you know, we should be focused on protecting children. Um, and if it, if it means that the only, <coughs> excuse me, the only way of protecting those children is online, then we should be looking at ways of, of managing that. And, and as you say, it is this sort of balance, balance of risk, um, but also about the kind of well-being and mental yeah. health of those children and the you know the sheer joy they have of you know seeing a teacher online or seeing yeah, their yeah. classmates exactly. or you know doing a song where they're all doing a bit and yeah. putting that up on youtube or whatever it is yeah. um yeah. out you know outweigh some of the concerns that people might have about you know can't take a picture of anybody or do anything yeah. you know exactly yeah. Yeah, totally. and do you do you think that more broadly this this kind of covid experience <laughs> has made schools think differently about any aspects of safeguarding? I, I think it has. I think it's, I think it's made them think very carefully about um, how, they, how they assess risk and how they assess vulnerability. Because um, the, the situation is so different. And it was, you know, obviously when you're, like you say, having regular contact with children day in, day out, and you can see those children, you can have conversations with those children, it's much easier to be able to spot a problem. <laughs> I think in this situation, it's so much harder to do that. And it's really difficult. And so it's made, it's really challenged their thinking. I think in terms of, you know, understanding vulnerability and identifying you know, how they can, how they can do that remotely. <clears throat> but also, I think it's thrown up all sorts of challenges around how you work with other agencies as well. So again, one of, one of the bits of feedback from the session we ran with Hyde at the Hydra Foundation 
was just how challenging it can be working with the other statutory agencies, particularly when those agencies are really stretched. So social services, police, and so on, and they're all, you know, um, they're all busy. Um, it, they're going to find it difficult sometimes to respond quickly uh, to a concern that a school might be raising about a child, a vulnerable child. But it's something I think that's going to continue to be a, an issue. I think. Um, I'm certain if we go into more lockdowns, we're going to see see that same kind of scenario. <clears throat> but we know that this problem or this challenge has been around for a long time, don't we? So, uh, <clears throat> so how the agencies work together and how they can improve that kind of, you know, that collaboration uh, moving forward is still and continues to be, I think, a big challenge for all of us. So that's certainly something I think we're just sort of being thrown up as a result of COVID. I think that's so true, Mike. I think people, you know, sometimes underestimate the importance of a school in the fabric of a local community. Um, they are not a processing machine where you put a child in at a certain age and they come out at another age, a certain set of certificates, uh, and, oh, we've done our job there. Actually, their fundamental primary duty is actually the well-being of those children. The fact that they then, because those children are able to learn, are able then to develop not only their character, but their skills, their ability, and actually their progress and attainment that flows from all those things being aligned. But also the fact that those children are part of a community. That school, in the same way, uh, perhaps, you know, that a church sometimes is considered to be part of the community, but a school uh, is certainly a huge centre of focus in any community. And I think one of the things that COVID-19 has done is to actually uh, almost, you know, talk about thinking outside the box. I think it's actually encouraged schools to think outside the fence, if I can put it that way, outside the confines of the school and re-engage in some way sometimes with not only other agencies in different ways but also the community itself with families um because that child is never going to succeed if you haven't got uh, you know to the full extent they can if you haven't got a good relationship with family you know and maybe there are siblings uh and there are other schools that this child is going to move to in september after this period of lockdown uh, or they're going to change year group or, or whatever. So all of those things mean that the school has got to be a, an organisation that reaches out into the community and doesn't just look inside itself. And I think COVID-19 has to some extent facilitated that. I mean, many schools will do that naturally, but some won't. And I think it's important that maybe this has been an opportunity for that new relationship to develop out of you know, I think we have got to try, you know, to identify the very some of the very positive things that have happened, as well as some of the challenges that have happened. And I think that greater feeling of community and the need for kindness, you know, uh, people talk about, don't they? You know, quite often these days. Actually, let's not think the worst of everybody. Let's try and think the best of everybody, and actually, let's try and support each other because that's the way everybody advances. Uh, together, you know. So I think it has been a really uh, important time for schools to become once again actually respected for the role that they play as a focal point in the community. As you say, a lovely, a lovely positive uh, note to think about at the at the end there. And is there anything that either of you would like to say to uh, our listeners potentially? Um, DSLs uh, listening. Well, I mean, I think it's, I'm just, I think the what's been overwhelming has been the, the just the level of commitment uh, by safeguarding leads all over the country to, to in response to what's happened. I think I mean, and we we you know we've been we we're in regular contact with, with DSLs and DSPs. Um, so we hear these stories, you know, um, a lot about uh, you know how they're trying to cope, uh, you know, within each of their schools and 
<clears throat> it never amaze, it never ceases to amaze me just how committed they are to protecting children. Uh, that's what always gives you hope. I think one of the things that um, you know I think has come out of all of this, as, as well as the, you know some of the points Martin has made, is the fact that the role of the safeguarding lead, whilst it's always has always been central uh, to keeping children safe in school, it's also kind of I think again thrown up some of the gaps. Um, in terms of their role and some of the things that we just need to be thinking about longer term, um, you know, uh, moving forward. You know, how, how can we better support safeguarding leads in their role? How can we professionalise some aspects of the role? Um, how can we provide much more consistent support, training, supervision and so on? Um, given the very crucial role they have, um, you know, in schools and in their community. Yeah, I think that's so true. The truth is that they absolutely deserve that support and they must have it. Uh, and that's certainly our mission to provide it. Well, thank you so much, Mike and Martin, for talking to us today. Some really interesting thoughts and kind of practical ideas there for, for people thinking about safeguarding coming in to uh, back into school in September. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.